Good morning and welcome, Calvary Quakertown. It's great to have you with us this morning. Well, you were just reminded in the video that we're in a series that we're calling Therefore Everyone. And that's kind of part two in our almost year-long series from the book of Romans. The first part of Romans we looked at under the title For Everyone. And there we kept working with the idea that Paul presents over and over and over again in the first eight chapters where he says this radical message of grace and forgiveness, acceptance and love is for everyone. Have you transacted that? Have you experienced that? But then kind of in the middle of Romans, Paul shifts gears a little bit and he begins to say, now on the basis of that message, everything should be different. On the basis of that change occurs. And one of the big changes that happens is how we relate to other people. And so we call part two, therefore everyone, because once we experience the for everyone message of the gospel, we now need to live for everyone just as Jesus lived for us. So therefore, in light of, as a consequence of, as a result of all that has happened for us, we now live continuing what Jesus started. Well, that relationship stuff really takes root and begins to hit home when we get to Romans chapter 12. And if you remember Romans chapter 12, we spent four weeks there and we looked at a number of different relationships from Romans 12. And we came up with a group of concentric circles to help us understand where the energy comes from to live out those different relationships in a transformed way. The center circle is the reservoir circle. And we said the gospel radically changes our relationship to God. So now rather than being alienated from God, separated from God, running from God, enemies of God, we are now accepted by God and we experience God's love and forgiveness and reconciliation and all that kind of stuff. But it doesn't end there. That spills over and it helps us better understand ourselves. And so with God in the center, we actually live a new relationship with ourselves. We think in a balanced way about ourselves. We know there's a whole bunch of stuff that we're terrible at. And there are a few things that we're half decent at. Have a balanced view. Don't think of yourselves more highly than you ought. Don't think of yourselves more lowly than you ought. Think of yourselves with a balanced view. And then on the basis of that, we live in relationship to other followers of Jesus. We call that the church. And what do we say? Our main mission in living out our responsibility in the church is that of service. And in that section, in Romans chapter 12, Paul says, you've all been given gifts. You have gifts that I don't have. You, you have gifts that other people in your row don't have, your section don't have, and they have gifts that you don't have. And together, we bring all of our gifts together to accomplish what God wants to do in our community and outside in our community to the larger community, region, and world around us. So our main tact in dealing with others in the church would be service. Then we talk about difficult people, those people that are annoying and irritating. You have some of those people in your life. You are those people to other people in your life. And what did we say? We need to love those people and in a sense, live out the gospel to them the way Jesus lived out the gospel to you. You and I were difficult people to God. We still are difficult people to God but he overcomes that difficulty with love and grace. And so he calls us to live out, in a, out a relationship with love and grace with those that can be irritating and annoying. And then last week, we talked about the most difficult or maybe one of the most difficult groups, and that's governmental officials and the government itself. 
Talk about difficult people. And we said, ultimately, we submit to God first and the governing authorities that he established second. And rather than getting caught up in lots of political skirmishes and separating and dividing over issues that are not central, we need to treat each other with love and unity in the midst of those disagreements as well. Well, this morning we come to, in a sense, another concentric circle. And we're going to talk about how should we relate to people with whom we really disagree. You have some people in your life you just disagree with about like important stuff. True story. I met three people already today inside the walls of Calvary Church. One of them is a Lakers fan. One of them is a Mets fan. And the other wants Duke to win the championship. I mean, we need, we need higher standards in this, folks. We need to raise the bar a little higher and keep those people out. You know, God has a funny sense of humor, too. Sometimes you, uh, you know that I, well, not really joke. You know that I talk about soccer and cats occasionally. You want to hear about God's uh, funny sense of humor? I have a grandson who's not quite two, who absolutely loves soccer. He can't even talk yet, but all he does is walking around kicking his leg. He wants soccer on the TV. I'm trying to break him of that nasty habit, but it's not succeeding. When it comes to cats, both of my daughters have cats. I guess they don't want me to visit. I'm not... So what do we do with people with whom we disagree? How does that work? Well, I'm glad you asked because Paul now turns his attention to that group. It's almost as if Paul says something like this. We've worked with all the principles. We've talked about offering your bodies as a living sacrifice to God. We've talked about having a balanced understanding of yourself. We've talked about serving each other in the church. We've talked about loving difficult people. We've talked about living in submission to government authorities. Let's talk about a real practical issue or a set of practical issues that are really irritating and causing you in Rome to divide, call each other names, look down on each other, critique and judge each other. So chapters 14 and 15 in the book of Romans are the or contain the application to specific issues of the principles Paul's been talking about for a couple of chapters now. So I'm going to read all of chapter 14 and the beginning of chapter 15, and you're going to try to stay awake, which means you're going to read, follow along in your Bible, find it on your phone, go to version, go on your tablet, grab a Bible out of the seat rack. And I, I, I'm going to warn you right up front, the issues that they're fighting over and disagreeing about and separating over are not our issues. But the principles Paul uses to help them build community are exactly the principles that we need to adopt and apply as well. So we ready? All right, as I read through, read through the chapter. You think, what are the issues and what are the principles that I need to live? All right, here we go. 14.1. Accept the one whose faith is weak without quarreling over disputable matters. One person's faith allows them to eat anything, but another whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The one who eats everything must not treat with contempt the one who does not, and the one who does not eat everything must not judge the one who does, for God has accepted them. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master? Servants stand or fall, and they will stand, for the Lord is able to make them stand. One person considers one day more sacred than another. Another considers every day alike. 
Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so to the Lord. Whoever eats meat does so to the Lord, for they give thanks to God. And whoever abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very, very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the living and the dead. You then, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or why do you treat them with contempt? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will acknowledge God. So then, each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Therefore, let us stop passing judgment on one another. Instead, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. I am convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it is unclean. If your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer acting in love. Do not by your eating destroy someone for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what you know is good to be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and receives human approval. Let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. All food is clean, but it is wrong for a person to eat anything that causes someone else to stumble. It is better not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything else that will cause your brother or sister to fall. So whatever you believe about these things, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who does not condemn himself by what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if they eat, because their eating is not done from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should, not please, each of us should please our neighbors for their good, to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had so that with one mind and one voice you might glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I know some of you are probably sitting there thinking, what the heck is that about? Well, they were fighting. They were separating. They were getting red-faced and calling each other names. They were splitting the church and not going to small group meetings with people. There was division, and they were dividing over the issues that are mentioned. Well, it's important for us to remember, or at least to think about what those issues are. Paul tells us right in verse 1, the weak and the strong are dividing over disputable matters. Did you see that in verse 1? They're disputable matters. Well, what are disputable matters then? 
Well, a few of them are mentioned in this chapter. Here were some of them. Some people eat meat. In fact, it says some people eat everything. You know some of these people, right? Some of you are these people. You eat everything, right? And other people only are eating vegetables. What's up with that? Um, so they have vegetarians and carnivores. They're in the same, gr- same industry. And the one group saying, we can't believe you only eat vegetables. That's terrible. The other group says, you eat meat. How disgusting is that? And they're kind of dividing and separating over whether they're eating meat or whether they're only eating vegetables. Another issue came up. One group thinks that certain days are more special than other days. So some people are saying, hey, this day's really, really special. It's a holy day. It's a holiday. It's a special day. It's my birthday. We need to do things differently. Other group says every day's basically the same. No day different than any other day. And they're fighting over their view of day. They're fighting over diet and they're fighting over days. They're also fighting about drinking. One group is uh, having wine with dinner, having a glass of wine. The other group says, oh no, you can't drink wine. They're separating over diet and days and what they can do and cannot do. They're disputable matters, Paul says. Now here's a real important definition for it. Disputable matters are matters that are not clearly condemned or commanded in the Bible. Disputable matters are not clearly condemned or commanded. They're disputable matters, which means some do, some don't. Some Christians are doing these things, some Christians are not doing these things. Some do, some don't, that's a disputable matter. There are lots of issues in the Christian life that are not disputable matters. So for example, adultery is not a disputable matter, just a heads up. Adultery is condemned in the Bible, right? It's kind of forbidden, so you can't say, well, some do, some don't, it must be whatever I want. No, no, no. There are lots of issues in the Bible that are clearly forbidden and clearly commanded. Disputable issues are not clearly commanded and they're not clearly forbidden. They're disputable matters. We mentioned some of them here. Aren't you glad we don't have any disputable matters in the church anymore? I mean, we outgrew this stuff a long time ago after Paul. No, the disputable matters are different, but they still exist, don't they? And Christians get red-faced and angry and they divide and they separate and they hold each other in contempt and they make judgment and say nasty, snarky things about people in the other camp. You know what I'm talking about, right? I always find it sadly ironic that what the Bible or what God often gives to make us one and kind of demonstrate, manifest our unity, we use to create division. Let me explain it this way. In the Old Testament... God says to the Jews, hey, I want you to celebrate a few feasts during the year. Now, why did he do that? Does he like them getting together and have a big meal? Eh, Maybe. But the point is, he knew that human beings are prone to forget. You're prone to forget, I'm prone to forget, and the Jews were prone to forget. So God said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to kind of punctuate the year with certain feasts to help you remember. And so I want you to remember what happened in the Exodus and Passover, right? And they celebrate Passover. I want you to remember that it's God who causes your crops to grow and there were feasts related to that. I want you to remember at harvest time that it's God who brings that productivity and we rely upon God, not upon, the, not upon soil only. We rely upon God. So God punctuates the year with reminders to help them keep their eyes focused on God rather than get them focused on other things. Well, in the New Testament, Jesus gives us two of those big reminders, baptism and communion. There are two ways that 
the New Testament is that here's, here's, here's something you need to remember. And so whenever we celebrate baptism, and we will in a few weeks, we celebrate baptism, we not only welcome someone into the community of faith, we are remembering that the cleansing and forgiveness and reconciliation doesn't come through our efforts. The forgiveness and reconciliation comes through what God did. So we're dead in our sin but raised to newness of life through Jesus. So we remember based on the picture. What's communion? Well, communion, we celebrate again the fact that through Jesus, we're forgiven and we're reconciled into a body. One of the things I often think of at communion, um, do you realize that thousands and thousands and thousands of kernels of wheat, or whatever the flour is, has to get crushed and put together to make one loaf of bread that we share? One loaf comes from thousands and thousands and thousands of kernels. Don't you think there's something to that? We're all the individual kernels, but through the gospel, we're knit together into one big loaf, right? There's unity in both the pictures. As we remember what Jesus has done, he's brought us into God's family. He is, God is our father, and we are now brothers and sisters. Isn't it interesting, though? The two things that Jesus gives to help us live out the unity through the centuries, Christians have fought over and separated over, caused whole new denominations to be formed over. And so what do we do? We separate and fight over how much water you need to be baptized, over how old you have to be to be baptized. We fight over how communion needs to be taken. We fight over whether you can have this with communion or that with communion. How present is Jesus in communion? The very things that God gives us to show that we're one we take our little view of, turn it around, and we wind up separating and causing division, even with the things that God gave to help us show that we're one. Yeah, how nasty are we? Well, same thing was happening in the church at Rome. The issues were different. They're fighting over holy days and regular days, common days. They're fighting over where you can eat meat or whether you eat vegetables. They're fighting over all these different things. There's another passage in the New Testament that talks about division over issues that we don't fight over, and that's in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let me mention that, and I'll show you what the issues seem to be in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8. In Romans 14, the one group called the weak group seem to be Jews that are clinging on to the remnants of their Jewish heritage, Jewish tradition, Jewish customs. That doesn't seem to be. All of the meat stuff seems to be related to clean and unclean meat that comes from the Old Testament. And so here's what they're saying. Since I can't trace the history of this piece of meat that I'm eating, I don't know if it's truly clean, so I know just to be safe, I'm not going to eat any meat at all. I'm only going to eat vegetables. Well, the other group's saying, heck with that, I like meat, right? I mean, put some burgers on the grill, bring me a shrimp cocktail. In fact, I like bacon. Bring the bacon out, right? Um, so they're fighting over that. One group says, no, 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 days. Well, in the Old Testament, there are lots of holy days. There's Sabbath days, there's Passover days, there's Day of Atonement, there's New Year's Day, all kinds of days. So the one group, the weak group, clinging to all of those things, saying, because of custom, because of tradition, because of culture, we need to continue these things. The other group saying, heck with that, we don't need that anymore. Jesus freed us from all of that custom and tradition. It seems like the Jewish group in Romans 14, would be the weak group, some Jewish Christians that want to repeat all that, and the Gentile Christians would say, forget all that, we don't need that anymore, all that stuff's gone in the New Testament now. In 1 Corinthians 8, 
the table seems to be turned a little bit. The issue there is not meat and vegetables. The issue there is whether the meat has been sacrificed to idols or not. And there the weak group seems to be the group that were formerly pagan Gentile idolaters. And they remembered going to the temple or going to the pagan temple and they remember they would have a feast around the idol and they would eat the meat that had been sacrificed to the idol as part of their worship. And in their minds, they're saying, wait a minute, I remember going to the idolatrous temple and the meat was kind of polluted by that. The Jewish Christians were the strong in 1 Corinthians 8. They're saying, there are no idols. Nobody's home. It's just a block of wood. And if the meat's cheaper, let's buy that meat. What, what's the moral of that story? Yeah, weak and strong kind of change categories given this set of circumstances and the situation. Here's the point. The weak in the Bible are always the group that add rules and regulations based on culture, custom, and tradition. They add rules and regulations that are not clearly commanded or forbidden in the Bible. They're adding things. Now, nothing wrong with adding those things for your personal benefit. They're adding those things as measures of someone else's spiritual maturity and growth. So that's the problem. They're coming up with a list of things. They're then imposing them on other people. The strong group, in both cases, the group that says, wait a minute. In the gospel, we're freed from all this stuff. Jesus has taken all of my baggage. Jesus has set me free. I, I don't have to treat meat and days and all that stuff now. I'm freed from all that kind of stuff. The weak, lots of rules and regulations piled on. The strong, exercising liberty, noticing, hey, you know what, it's not exactly as it seems. I've been freed from all of that. But we have a model that we talk about periodically here that at least in my mind helps us understand this. We talk about absolutes, convictions, and preferences. That ring a bell? And that fits right into what we're talking about here. We've got a center that we call absolutes, and it fits right in here. Absolutes are things that are clearly, regularly, consistently taught in the Bible. They're things that Christians have believed through the centuries. We die on the absolute hill. There are such things as absolutes in the Christian life. In Romans 14, they're not arguing about whether forgiveness is only in Jesus. That's an absolute. They're not arguing about whether Jesus is God. That's an absolute. They're not arguing about whether we really need to be rescued. Those are absolutes. The absolutes are hills you die on. They're the things that are clearly, regularly, consistently taught in the scripture. That's not the stuff they're fighting about in Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8. Absolutes are not disputable matters. Well, around, around the absolute circle, we have convictions. Now, convictions are human constructs, right? Humans build these things, but they build them with biblical verses. So, for example, I was thinking uh, earlier this morning. Suppose we all um, stopped at Staples on the way into the service. I've, I've never been in Staples, I don't think. Or you go to Michael's, the art store, whatever it's called. And we each pick up a packet of art materials. We get magic markers, we get paints, we get colored pencils, we get some big paper, we get all kinds of stuff. And the assignment this week is, you are each to go home and make a picture and bring it next week. Now here's the problem, probably, probably only two of you in this room can actually do art. 
The rest of us make a mess. And by the way, here's my definition of art. If I can do it, it's not art. <laughs> now, here's the point, though. We would each come back with something radically different. Many of you, because you're full of yourselves, would come back with a picture of yourself. Here's a self-image that I did here. None of us would know, but it's just maybe you, some of you would paint a picture of your cat just to tick me off. Others of you would paint a picture of your dog, your kids, the tree in your yard, because that's easy. Or that guy on TV that does with the brush and the funky hair. And you, you paint, we don't, all the pictures would come in. They'd be a very different things. The quality would be different. We all had the same materials, but we all produced something different. That's what convictions are. We get the same materials in the Bible, but individuals or groups put the materials together in different ways and produce something a little different. That's what convictions are. We take the information, verses, ideas from the Bible, and we put it together in such a way that kind of makes sense to us. Paul would say in Romans 14, then live out of those convictions. You need to live them out. Go live them out. In fact, he says, be convinced in your own mind and live out your convictions. There's no problem with taking the biblical information and putting it together into a way that makes sense for you and then live it out. Nothing wrong with that. You have to do that. The problem is when you take your little picture, your conviction list, and use it to measure someone else's spiritual maturity. You measure their growth rate. You use your little construct to measure how they're doing in their relationship with God. Now you've crossed the line. That's what's happening in Romans 14. They're using their little construct and saying, well, you guys really aren't doing what God wants you to do. God's not pleased with you. You're not doing this. I used to have a friend, uh, no longer a friend. Uh, I used to have a friend. Journaling was a really big deal to this guy. And I don't know how many times he said to me, you know, Charles, if you want God's best, you need to journal every day. And I would think, well, how about God's second best? What's that? Um, I mean, I'm not a journaler. I don't like to write in books. I mean, I could bang something out at the computer. But to this guy, he had a conviction, and he was really helped by journaling. And that's great. If journaling works for you, that's great. But don't take journaling, which God never forbids or commands, and make that a measure of whether someone else is tracking with God or not. That's the problem. You take your little construct, and you use it to measure someone else's spirituality. Well, around our convictions, we then have preferences. I hate to break this to some of you. Your preferences have little, if nothing, to do with the Bible. Your preferences have to do with what you like, the clothes you like to wear, the music style you like to listen to. You know, by the way, there's no music style in the Bible. You don't hear it. You kind of impose your favorite style on it. And then what do we do? We divide and separate, condemn and critique, and hold in contempt people that have a different style than us. Oh, yeah, but we're not talking about that. See how that works? Absolutes, convictions, and preferences. Here's the point. When it comes to absolutes, we need to agree on those. If you don't agree on the basic absolutes of the Bible, the essentials of the gospel, if you don't agree on those, you're not a Christian. We're glad you're here. We welcome you each week. But if you don't believe that you really need to be rescued, if you don't believe that Jesus is the only rescuer, and if you don't believe that transacting that deal by, you know, by faith and experiencing that grace, if you don't believe those things, you're not a Christian. Again, we're glad you're here, but absolutes, that's what makes you family. That's what puts you as a follower of Jesus. Convictions are things that you then build on, helpful hints for you. And to the one group at the church in, 
in at Rome, they're saying, hey, we really need to not eat these things. That helps us grow. And Paul would say, great, you go do that. But don't go telling somebody else they shouldn't do that and they should do this. See how it's working? So absolutes, convictions, and preferences can help us think through those disputable issues. They're not absolutes they're fighting about. They're convictions they're fighting about. Well, the real problem isn't the disputable matters. The real problem is disruptive people. Do you notice that? Do you notice some of the words that appear in these verses um, about these people? They're quarreling. They're judging each other. They're holding each other in contempt. They're not just disagreeing and still loving. They're pointing fingers and condemning each other. The real problem is not the disputable matters. The real issue is the people are disruptive. They're disrupting community and destroying unity over those disputable issues. So it's the attitude of the people. It's not actually the issues themselves. Well, how can we... uh, discover community then? How can we discover and develop community? Well, uh, interestingly, Paul has something to say to both groups. Remember the weak group? That's a group that formulates more rules and regulations, and they begin to, okay, you got to jump through all these hoops. I got to be extra careful. Paul has something to say to them. Uh, I don't know how many times, you know, I've listened to sermons, I've read commentators, and sometimes when I read the commentators, when I listen to the message, it seems like Everybody, Paul doesn't say that much to the weak. He's really kind of working on the strong. Wait a minute. Paul calls them weak. That's not a compliment. I mean, when Paul's writing to me, he said, now, those of you that have all these extra rules and regulations, those of you that eat only vegetables, you're weak. Let me say that again. You only eat vegetables, you're weak. You're weak. That's, if you have special days, you're weak. That's not a compliment. Now, Paul isn't slam dunking them. But Paul isn't patting them on the back and saying, oh, attaboy, keep going with that. No, he's critiquing them. Now, here's the problem. What's the big temptation for the weak, those with extra rules and regulations, those that take their convictions and use them to measure someone else's spiritual maturity? The temptation is they will judge those that don't measure up to their convictions. Now, you've never experienced that or heard that, right? They're tempted to judge. So what does Paul say? Don't judge your brothers and sisters when it comes to disputable issues. They're not your servant. They're God's servant. Let God take care of his own servants. He doesn't need you as his policeman running around beating his servants into place and into shape. He can handle that. What does he say to the strong? He doesn't say to the strong, that a boy, do whatever you want. He says to the strong, hey guys, I'm one of you. Did you notice? Paul says, We, the strong, Paul knows that eating these things, there's nothing wrong with the meat. There's nothing wrong with the meat sacrifice to idols. Even Nothing wrong with all that. We're free to do all of that. But don't let your understanding of truth reduce love in your life. So here's what's the temptation for those that are strong. The temptation for those that are strong is to feel superior to those that are weak, right? I don't have all those rules and regulations. Boy, you're, you're so simple-minded. Remember, Paul called you guys weak, remember? I'm strong um, to feel superior. So Paul says, if you're weak, don't judge those that are expressing more freedom. If you're strong, don't feel superior and critique 
those that have a few more rules and regulations than you. Paul threads the needle and says something to each of the groups. He rebukes both of them in a sense. Let love be primary, but notice it's truth and love. It's not love without truth or truth without love. The weak group needs to grow in truth. The strong group needs to grow in love. And together we need to live out the to two attributes of the gospel, love and truth. What a novel idea. So how can we do that? Well, I would recommend keep our little model in your head. Remember absolutes, convictions, and preferences. When it comes to the absolutes, friends, we die on those hills, right? There are some things clearly, regularly, and consistently taught in the Bible. It's right or wrong. God forbid some stuff. They're not disputable matters. If it's clearly, consistently taught in the Bible, it's not disputable. It's an absolute. We stand with those things, we proclaim those things, and let the consequences come as they may. When it comes to convictions, you need to develop your convictions. You need to be convinced in your own mind. Research them. Have conversations about your convictions with people that don't have the same set of convictions as you. Kind of argue them out, fight them out. But don't separate, don't critique, don't hold each other in contempt, don't judge, don't feel superior. Respect each other, accept each other, just as Jesus accepted you. Oh yeah, and when it comes to your preferences, sacrifice your preferences so someone else can have their preferences met. See how that works? We don't sacrifice our absolutes. We die on those hills. We develop convictions and we dialogue about our convictions and we live out our convictions. We wrestle with them and figure them out as best we can. And when it comes to preferences, we let other people have their preferences and we sacrifice ours. Not a bad way to live, huh? I have the sneaking suspicion that if I could live out those three in my marriage, my marriage would be better than it is. If I could live them out in my family, live them out in my workplace, live them out in my neighborhood, live them out with my friends, God knows what he's talking about. Absolutes, convictions, and preferences. There's work to do. The real work is marrying together truth and love. You know, there's a quote that some of you have heard. I've tried to research who actually said it. Augustine's name appears a lot. I've never actually found a place where Augustine said it, so I put a question mark after his name. Just this week, I heard, uh, no, it was Richard Baxter that said it. Somebody sent me an email after the first service. That was some German guy said it. I don't know who the heck said it, but whoever said it, it's a really good quote. And he speaks to the three circles. Here's what he said. In the essentials, the absolutes, let there be unity. We agree on that stuff. In the non-essentials, convictions, let there be liberty, freedom. You live out yours and let other people freely live out theirs. And in all things, preferences, let there be charity or love. In the essentials, you die on those hills. In the convictions, you give freedom for people to live out those disputable matters differently. But in all things, let's love one another. Truth and love married together. That is how we continue what Jesus started. Let's stand and pray. Father, we give you thanks that the Bible speaks to the issues of life. And even though from this chapter, we realize the issues of life are a little different in Rome than they are for us today, but human beings are still the same and your principles still work. And so Lord, I pray that you would help us to allow the absolutes of the gospel to so be the center of our lives that we live out of that well. Lord, allow us to develop conviction, convictions that help us live and help us to be in dialogue with people as we're shaping and working on those and refining them. 
And Lord, when it comes to our preferences, help us to not be people that have to have it our way. Help us to be able to sacrifice our preferences so people with a different set of preferences can have theirs met once in a while. We pray in the name of Jesus who brings this reality to us. Amen. 